All right, we're going to dive into God's Word here right now. And if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up to 2 Peter. Now, we've been working our way through 1 Peter. It's toward the very end of the New Testament. And now we're just going to pick up and do 2 Peter. It's, it's a short book. It's going to take us about 10 weeks. And we're really looking forward to see the continuation of Peter's thought. Okay? So 2 Peter... Starting in the first verse, and I've asked Naomi to come and read our text for us. And we're going to be doing the first four verses. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is God's word. Well, let me give you a little background on... This, um, you probably know some things already because of what we've just done in 1 Peter. So what we know with 2 Peter is that Peter is writing to the exact same people. Flip over to chapter 3 if you need to and just look at the first verse of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. It says this. This now, the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So it's very clear. This is the same group of people. That he's writing to. And so what do we know about this group of people? We've heard it in 1 Peter. These are marginalized people. These are people that are um, under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. So these guys are not the cool kids. These guys are not very powerful. These people are marginalized. Okay, They're not in the main flow of, of Roman culture. These are marginalized people on the edges, on the margins. Okay, And this is ancient what would be, uh, what's called ancient Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, that part of the world, okay? Different churches throughout different towns in that part of the world. But here's one key difference. One main key difference. Peter, he tells us, is nearing the end of his life. And he knows it's coming, okay? Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I want to show this to you quick. This is what Peter writes. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. We'll unpack this verse in a, in a couple of weeks, but just check this out. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, meaning as long as I'm still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder. So I got something to say. I want you to remember it. Since, here's the key, since I know that the putting off of my body, that's just a metaphor for saying I'm going to die. The putting off of my body will be soon. I know it's coming. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, Jesus promised this would happen to Peter. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's pretty um, 
He's pretty excited about communicating something to these people because if you think about it, if you're lying on your deathbed and you're talking to people that you really love, especially those people in the church, and your, your vision and your desire is that this church would continue to march forward into the world and not be extinguished at the margins, but from the margins emerge into just this life-altering, culture-shaping reality. If that's your conviction and that's your passion, and it was for Peter— and you know you're not going to be around much longer, you're going to have some very important things to say, right? And that's what this letter is. That's what this letter is. It's a farewell discourse of sorts. A farewell discourse of sorts. And so what, what, what's, what's the main theme? Well, I think this opening text kind of sets the stage. The opening text kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of the book. And here's what he wants to say. Knowing and trusting in who God is, knowing and trusting in who God is and what he has said will make you into the kind of person who can endure. Let me say that again. Knowing and trusting in who God is and what he has said will make you into the kind of person who can endure. So let's dive in and see this fleshed out, okay? Let's dive in here. We're gonna, I'm just going to skip the introduction of verses 1 and 2, and we're going to start right with verse 3. What does it say? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence. All right, so what does that mean? That's a little bit dense as we're reading that. All right, so let's unpack this. What he's saying is this. If you're a Christian here today, you have all that you need to live a life of godliness. You have all that you need to live a life of godliness. You have all you need to live a life that looks like God. That's what godliness means. You have all you need to experience fullness of joy in following God. That's life and godliness. See it there? Look at the end of the first phrase. Life and godliness. You have what you need. That's what it says there. His divine power through God's power. He's granted. He's given it to you. you. All things. You're fully equipped to live a life that looks like God. That reflects God. That bears the fruit of the Spirit. That experiences joy and satisfaction. Okay? You've got what you need to actually do that. That's what he's saying. All right. But how? Can we unpack this a little bit? Because I'm not so, so sure I'm experiencing that right now. Okay, good. Let's do it. Look at what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, comma. How? Here's how. Through the knowledge of him. See it there? Through the knowledge of him. You can know life, true life-giving life. You can look like God himself in certain character qualities, not exhaustively, you'll never be able to change water into wine, but you can look like him in increasing measure in the way that you carry yourself. And that happens, what does it say here? That happens through the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of him. Verse 3. Well, this isn't just abstract, unknown knowledge. If you know something, what you know it's kind of obvious, it, it, it doesn't even need to be stated, but if you know something, that knowledge has content, right? I know something, so I can say something about it. So if we know God, what would we say about him? Who is he? Well, he tells us here. 
He tells us here, it's by his own glory and excellence. See it there? Look at it there in verse 3. He's called us to, or another translation would be, you might see a note in your Bible, by his own glory and excellence. This is what we know about God. This is the content of our knowledge about God. We know that he is glorious and that he is excellent, right? He's called us by his actual glory and excellence. So if I'm called by God, what am I going to see? I'm going to see that, that, that God has content. This knowledge is going to look like something. I could turn to my friend and say, this God that I know, well, you know God? Yeah, well, what's he like? Well, here's what he's like. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's all-powerful. And he's excellent. He's virtuous. So if you say you know God and you don't see him as glorious or excellent, then you probably don't know God or the God of the Bible. So to have the power to, to live life in a godly way, to experience life of godliness and like the fruit of the Spirit that, that comes out of the life of godliness, that's what he has in mind here. See it there in the first phrase? If I'm going to do that, i got to know who God is. Right? He's given me the ability to, do, to live that way through knowing him. That's what it says. And through knowing him, I know that he's beautiful. I know that he's powerful. I know that he's virtuous. Think about it like this. Here's an analogy. If I walk up to a perfect stranger and I say, I want you to be like me. First of all, that would be quite odd, wouldn't it? They would look at you funny. But let's just say they didn't. That would be impossible. They would say, I can't be like you. Why? Well, because I don't know you. But if I say to my son, son, I want you to look and live just like me. I want you to reflect who I am. I want you to model yourself after me. I want you to reflect me. That's totally different than asking a total stranger, right? Why? Well, because he knows me. Because we've lived in the same house for 14 years. He's heard me and watched me in so many different situations, right? And that's what Peter is getting at here. God calls us to godliness. He calls us to life because it says here that Christians know him. Like my son knows me, his father. Christians know God as their father. And so God can tell us that we have everything we need for godliness and life since we know him. Look at it again. Hopefully it will come together for you now. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to or by his own glory and excellence. So in order for me to grow in godliness, for, in order for me to grow in experiencing true life-giving life, I have to first of all know God. I got to first of all know God. But there's more. It's not just raw knowledge of God. It's not just knowledge, it's promises. It's not just knowledge, it's promises. Check it out. Look at verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in, of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, so let's see how this connects. Peter has just told us that we already have all that we need, right? To experience true blessing in life, to to, to experience godliness in life, to reflect him in our character. And it happens through knowing him, but it's not just that. It's much more. So much of what God has said about himself as we know him has to do with promises that we believe by faith, okay? That we trust by faith. We're going to unpack this in a second. That we remind ourselves of so we can battle sin. How does this work? How does it work that through knowledge of God, and now we're adding to knowledge of God, knowledge of his promises, how does that, see it there, those promises of God, his precious promises, is going to help us become, look at it in verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. All that means is not some new agey partaking in the divine nature like we talk about today in our culture, but all this means is I'm an image bearer. God has created me in his image, and, and, but sin has marred that. But as I embrace knowledge of God and the promises of God, the image of God has begun to be restored in me. And in that sense, I become a partaker of the divine nature. I start to look, very simply, I start to look more and more like Jesus, okay, in the way I carry myself. So how does that look? How does that work? That knowledge of God, but now the promises of God are going to help me look more and more like Jesus. Help me grow in godliness. Help me grow in holiness. How does that work? Well, let's start with just the immediate context of 2 Peter. Because when he talks about the word promise, see it there in verse 4, the word promise? In the, in the context of 2 Peter, what he has in mind is the promise of Christ's return. And we're going to see this flushed out in the next few weeks. But he talks about this. Uh, I'll give you one example. 2 Peter 3, 9 there. If you flip over to, to chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And in this context, promise means the return of Christ. And the reason why he's bringing this up is because at this time, there were false teachers coming and polluting the church. And they were saying, you said that, 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 that Jesus is going to come back? That's not true. Why would you believe that? That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. And Peter's saying, oh, yes, it is. I sat there and I heard it with my own ears. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will return to you. I have prepared a place for you. It's going to happen. It's a promise. So when, 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 when Peter says the word promise here, this is the immediate context, most likely, is the promise of Christ's return. Okay? Now let's think about it. How would the promise of Jesus' return affect how you live your life today when it comes to, verse 3, life and godliness. If these precious promises, look at it again, if these precious promises are going to help me grow in becoming more like Jesus, the divine nature, it's going to help me um, have what I need to live a life of godliness, verse 3, how would that work? How How does that promise connect to my present? How does that promise connect to my present? Well, maybe something like this. This week, uh, I returned from vacation. Actually, last week I returned from vacation and saw that someone had sideswiped my truck and ripped the mirror off the side of it. 
I had just, my neighbor picked up the mirror out of the street and put it in the back of my truck. I'm like, what the heck happened here? And they told me that they heard somebody later at night drive by a, a little small crash. The person backed up and looked around and then just took off. And, man, that kind of bothered me, you know? It's not the worst thing in the world. But that someone would just hit my car and not leave a note or anything. I was like, man, that's, that's unjust. Um, that's not cool. And now this isn't the worst thing in the world, but, you know, that really bothered me. And, and that, I could fixate on that if I didn't have God's word, if I didn't have God's promise. Now this might seem silly because it is kind of a small thing, but God's word says that when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things right. And all the injustice, what that means is all things right, meaning like all the injustice of the world will be righted, okay? Right now, things are not as they should be, but one day Jesus will make them as they should be. All the sad will become untrue. All the wrongs righted. So how does God's promise of his return affect my present? Well, I don't have to freak out about a broken mirror and the injustice of someone not leaving a note because one day it's all going to get worked out, Right? And that might seem like a small thing, like why are you worrying about that, even that being worked out? Well, there may be other big things in your life than, than, uh, than a, a side swipe and no note being left. There's coming a day when Jesus will make all things right. And in light of what all of us go through in, in whatever scenario you find yourself in, man, that's a precious promise. That's a precious promise that right now I can't handle it. I can't manage it. I can't do anything about so much of the injustice in this world. And man, if I didn't have that promise that he's going to come and return, it's all going to be sorted out. I don't know how, but it will someday. Man, I'd just be tempted to put a gun to my head, right? This world is crazy, but it's going to get worked out. So you see how the precious promises, verse 4, connect to be not being riddled with a desire for revenge or riddled with anxiety about having to control the future. See that? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at. So here's the whole point for today. Let me, let me just sum up what this text is about again, and then we're going to make this real practical. I'm going to bring this into your neighborhood even more. All right? If you want to live a life of joy, verse 3, look at it with me, meaning life and godliness, through not looking like the world, through not reflecting the world, like the end of verse 4, but looking like God, verse 3, divine, divine nature, then we have to know God. See that in verse 3? Through the knowledge of him and know what he has promised. See that, verse 4? We have to know those precious promises. Said differently, if you want to live a life that's not corrupted, see the end of verse 4, the corruption of sin? If you want to live a life that's not corrupted by the sewer of sin that flows from much, not all, of course, but much of what the world has to offer, you have to know God, verse 3, the knowledge of him, and know what he has promised, verse 4. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, what am I doing right now? I'm holding God's word, right? We do that. We do verse 3. You want to make verse 3 applicable to your life, it means knowing your Bible. 
Through the Bible, we know God and we know his promises. And that's probably the biggest application point for today. If you want this verse, verses 3 and 4, to come alive in your life, you got to read, you got to study, you got to memorize, you got to meditate upon your Bible. you got to be soaked in your Bible. When, when someone pricks your finger, you should bleed Bible, okay? See, God has given this to us as a gift, for our blessing. Some of you hear me say that and you're like, oh no, you feel guilt because like, you don't read it as you should or it's not enough. That's not what this is about. It's, here's what it's about. Remembering that this has been given to us as a gift. Not so you can be a slave to like a quiet time or something and feel guilty all the time for what you're doing or feel real prideful because, hey, I read my Bible for an hour today. God really must like me. That's not how the gospel works. That's not how Christianity works. You don't earn points by reading it or lose points by not reading it. God has given us, the point is this, that God has given us his word so that we can know him. So we can have fuel to endure this life. So we can embrace these promises that he's revealed in his word so that we can do verses 3 and 4. Because when I read verses 3 and 4, man, I get excited. That sounds good. Yeah, I want to have life. I want to have godliness. Man, I want to participate in being like God, reflecting him. Because I know that's joy. I don't want to be corrupted by sin. Who wants corruption? Right? So guilt or whatever you have attached to your Bible reading is not the issue. The issue is, do I believe that God knows what he's talking about and I want to be near him so that I can be empowered to live the way that he knows is going to bring him the most glory and me the most satisfaction. So we got to be people of the book. we got to look at the book. we got to be soaked in the book. we got to know God and know his promises, right? And let me say this. Having regular Bible intake, you know, like I, I, I try to read my Bible in the mornings or whatever you guys do, you know, whatever your system is, whatever your system of intentionality is, and you should have a, a system by which to be intentional, um, it's, it's not necessarily going to make all of our problems better overnight. Jesus himself was the word of God incarnate, and he did not have a pain-free life. Okay. But let me just say this, to the degree that we neglect God's word and how it's designed to function in our lives based on verses 3 and 4, to the degree that we neglect it, we just harm ourselves. And, and our ability to grow beyond different issues in our life, maybe it's fear or anxiety or whatever it is, man, we're just stunted um, if we don't soak in the scriptures. Let me close with how this practically works, okay? Let, let, let's, let's just practice the promises of verses 3 and 4, okay? Because what does it say again? It says that I can experience life and godliness if I know God and I know his promises. Okay, that's what verse 3 and 4 is all about. All right, so how does that work? Let's take an issue. Let's say that I'm really struggling with greed, and Brian gets up at the end of the service and, and he says, you know, if you're a member here, you know, you're called to participate in being generous. And God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you hear all that and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I just don't really want to. And you struggle being generous. 
Or someone, your neighbor is, you know, behind on their rent. Your neighbor, you know, can't afford a car repair and you've got some extra means and it wouldn't be that big a deal for you to help them out, but you just don't want to. Struggle with greed. How are you going to change? How do you battle that sin of greed? Well, one way would be just like, oh, I'm just going to like try harder to be generous and just figure out a way to manufacture generosity in my heart and just, just try harder. That's not the Second Peter way. The way that glorifies God is to do this text. What is the promise about God and, and my life that connects to greed? Well, here's a promise. Acts 20.35 says this. Look at it on the screen. This is a promise. A verse 4 kind of promise. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is Paul quoting Jesus in Acts 20. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Then I have to go, okay, so what's the promise? The promise is I'm going to be, think about the logic here of the verse. I'm going to be blessed more if I'm generous than if I'm just simply focused on receiving all the time. Right? Then what do I have to do? Quite simply, what I have to do is go, does God know what he's talking about? Yes or no? Is that true? Yes or no? See, that's not me going, oh, I'm just going to like manufacture generosity. This is a faith pursuit now. This is not a, a just a, a only a human effort pursuit. This is a faith pursuit. Does God know what he's talking about? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to walk in into that promise. I'm going to start living out that promise in my life because I'm, I'm going to say, well, God has promised and I believe him and I trust him by faith that he knows what he's talking about. So when my friend needs money for a car repair, well, yeah, of course I'll help him out. I'd, I'd love to be blessed and I can be a blessing to him and I'd love to see him be blessed by me so it all works out, right? And God gets the glory because I'm trusting him. So God gets glorified. I get more blessing. This guy gets more blessing. See how that works? It's a win for everybody, right? So I go to battle against my sin with the promises of God. That's what Peter is saying here. So this is just one practical example. If I'm greedy, I want to battle greed with Acts 20.35. The promise is that I'm going to be more blessed if I'm a giver than if I'm stingy. See it? Let's keep, let's keep going. Let's take another one. Let's say, let's say you're stuck in feeling shame over some Man, man, it's just some gross sin that you committed. Maybe it was many years ago, and it's just been years and years, and you just can't seem to get over it. And it feels like it defines who you are. And it just lingers in your mind. How could I do that? What was I thinking? And it just kind of haunts you. Like, could God really forgive this? I know he forgives the little sins like all my friends do, but this one, this is a serious one. Can God really forgive me of this? And you just fixate on it. Well, that's a sin because you're defining yourself not by how God says you are, but how your sin says you are. And that's not Christianity. That's not Christian faith. The Christian message is this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That sin issue is not who you are anymore. So how dare you define yourself that way when Christ says you're new? 
you're a new creation. So how am I going to battle that sin of holding on to past shame? I'm going to open up Romans. I'm going to turn to chapter 8. And I'm going to see verse 1 where it says, Therefore, there is now, now, right now, not in the future, but right now, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, no condemnation. So why are you condemning yourself? Here's another one. If, you're, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You're not dirty, you're clean. Why? Because God says so. These promises go to war with shame. You see that? There's no condemnation. God is just. He's forgiven you. It's over. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. You're a new creation, and you're clean by him if you confess your sins to him. So if God doesn't condemn you, what right do you have to condemn yourself? God's word is true. You can trust it. See, we slay the shame with the promises of God's word. These are promises that Peter's talking about, verse 4. He is faithful to forgive. He took it all for you. Jesus took the beating for you so you can stop beating yourself up. So we, we don't move forward with cheap grace like God likes to forgive, I like to sin, good combination. No, we move forward with thanksgiving and humility and just being in awe of the mercy of God, right? See how the promises of God help us live a verse 3 life of godliness? See that? Let's do one more. What about anxiety about the future? All of us struggle with this in some degree. I hear it all the time in my own head. I hear it in our city group, you know. We struggle with anxiety about the future. Is God going to provide? I've got these crazy situations that are coming down at me, and I don't know how this is going to flesh out in the future, and, and i got financial stress, and I, I want to finish grad school, or you know, i got aging parents. I don't know what the future holds for them, or whatever the situation may be. What promises of God's word go to war with the sin of anxiety? about the sin of anxiety, especially when it comes to God's provision. Because, because ultimately, a lot of this boils down to this. Will God provide? Yes or not? Yes or no? What does God's word say? What is the promise? Romans 8.32, th- these promises will put iron in your spine when you're tempted to just waver with all the uncertainty in your life. These promises are so awesome. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for, his, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the logic there? That if God did the hard thing of giving you himself in Jesus to pay for your sin, those who were opposing God and enemies of God, and he laid down his life for his enemies, if he did that hard thing of giving himself in his son to you, he can do the easy thing of your next five minutes. He can do the easy thing of your next five hours. He can do the easy thing of your next five days and five years. He can show up and deal with the financials that you're not sure about or the, the, the parenting situation that you're kind of freaking out about, like, how is this going to manifest itself in the future or whatever, right? That's the logic of this verse. He's going to graciously give you all things. That's a big all. 
Everything that you need. See the logic? This is gospel logic. If God has done this, given you the essence of the gospel, Jesus, space, time, and history, 2,000 years ago, he can deal with your future. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 6. Says it straight up. Here's another promise. Verse 4 kind of promise. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So God knows your need. But here's what we're to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? Here we got that all language again. And all things, all these things will be added to you. So we got to ask ourselves now, not by trying to manufacture through human effort more godliness um, that, that looks like, you know, slaying the sin of anxiety. No, we got to ask ourselves this. It's, it's a process of faith and trust. Do I believe Matthew 6 or not? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to walk, in, walk into the future with that promise, trusting that God knows what he's talking about, trusting that he's the God of the universe, and it makes sense that he does know what he's talking about. I believe him. See how our growth in godliness is not, it, it does involve some human effort, but mainly it's a, it's a faith process. It's a trusting process. Are God's promises true, yes or no? We defeat anxiety by looking to God's promises and asking if we believe them or not. So growth in godliness has so much to do with trusting God's word and not trusting your own power. It's all about allowing the promises of God's word to impact our daily life. So let me just close with this. Do you view these promises as precious? Because according to Peter, who knows that his death is imminent and knows that he's got only a few more things he's going to be able to say to these people, he says that these promises are so precious. Ladies, like you look at your wedding ring and you go, that jewel is precious. I don't want to lose it, right? This is precious to me. It would be a, a big crisis isn't it, in our home. We've done it. We've had that happen in our home when we've lost the wedding ring, okay? That was not fun, Right? And in the same way, Peter's saying, these promises of God are so precious. I think we need to view them that way. So what does that imply? Real simply, going back to what I've already said, it implies that I've got to know what those promises are. And how do I do that? I do it through understanding and knowing and soaking and meditating and memorizing God's word. Right? It's so simple we can miss it. What I just walked through is what we should be equipped to do in everyday life. How many situations face us where I'm confronted with fear and I'm confronted with anxiety and I'm confronted with potential for greed or anger or misplaced shame and God's word has a promise for every single one of those that wants to slay those. But what if I don't know God's word? Then I'm just going to be anemic. I won't have the power. Or someone comes to you in your city group 
Someone comes to you on Sunday morning and you're just saying, hey, how are you doing? And that person is trying to be real, like we want to be real at the vine. and says, you know what, I'm struggling with this. And if we don't know God's word, what are we going to have to say? How powerful is it when someone can come alongside you and gently, not using the Bible just to like, hey, here's the easy answer and so you, you can start, stop crying now. Like that's never how we use the Bible. But sensitively and with discernment, hey, I know you're struggling with this. Can I remind you of a promise from God that's really meant the world to me and I think it might mean the world to you and we just share the word together like that? I mean, that's beautiful. That's power. That's verses 3 and 4 coming alive in the life of the church. And it should be normative among us. So what that means is we just have to know God's word, right? Because i got to remind them to myself. And for the beauty and purity of this church, we got to remind each other, right? Who cares what I think? I want to know what God thinks, ultimately, right? That's where the power is for me to live a life of godliness. So that's why we preach verse by verse. Because we want to know God's word. That's why we have our kids' ministry, helping them understand God's word. That's why Porterbrook, we disciple people by by, by knowing God's word and and being soaked in God's word. That's why our city groups orbit around every other week God's word. That's why our counseling has so much to do with God's word. It's for our blessing. Okay, God's word is for our blessing. I hope that's clear from verses 3 and 4. Peter is saying this so this early church can be blessed and have endurance and not give up in the face of a culture that wants to marginalize them more and more and more. And he's saying, don't do it. It's not worth it. The beauty of the gospel is worth it. You can endure, and here's how you endure. You battle sin and you battle corruption by the promises, the precious promises of God. you got to know him. you got to know what he said. And that's going to enable us individually and corporately, to be a beautiful, beautiful church. Let's pray together. Father, may it be so. Would you help us? We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.